2:18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Uh, good evening. It's good to see everybody here today as we worship together. Uh, you know, I just want to say, you know, this sermon series is, uh, it's not going to really cover uh, maybe like the nuts and bolts of like, you know, it's, this is not marital advice. This is not marriage counseling that's going on in the sermon series. Uh, and I actually have a bigger vision for uh, what I want to do here and basically to give God's vision for what marriage actually is. And so because of that, I do want to encourage you, if uh, you're looking for more of that kind of thing, uh, to attend this seminar. And you don't have to be married and you don't have to be dating. Um, because uh, I, I think what I also want to do is talk about uh, not just marriage, but uh, how to, um, you know, uh, I just have some reflections on how you know, dating is done now uh, today, especially with online dating and uh, some of the things that uh, take place. So please uh, come to the seminar, and I, I think it would just also be a great time to uh, have some time of fellowship as we barbecue together. Now, I'm going to ask you to uh, all bow with me for a word of prayer, and uh, we'll get started. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you give us your word. We thank you that you give us uh, not only your word, but it comes with power. And we rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit to uh, to really dig that word deep into our hearts, uh, so much so that it would saturate our very being, so much so that the thoughts that we have would be your thoughts that we think after you, uh, so much so that we would be uh, filled um, with your truth, with your knowledge, with your wisdom, with your love. And we pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would do that uh, for us today as we look at this wonderful passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so as I said, the scope of the series is bigger. Uh, I want to get across God's vision of marriage because primarily I think the way we understand marriage is actually going to teach us a lot about how we understand our relationship with God. And last week we started off by saying this. Uh, I started from a very unusual place and I started by saying, you know, marriage, marriage is good, but marriage isn't everything. And someone joked around with me and said, asked me if the sermon was going to be about how terrible it is to be married. And uh, that was obviously not my point and that was obviously not my intent. Uh, but I will admit, I didn't really focus too much on the aspect of marriage being good. And so that's some of what uh, I want to do today. And But basically, to recap uh, what we went over last week, we looked at marriage and we said the story that marriage uh, that we tell oftentimes about marriage is that it is supposed to be this 
uh, ultimate means of ultimate fulfillment and means of great pleasure. It's supposed to be a means of our security that life doesn't really begin until we get married. And I was trying to debunk that story and say that's not quite the biblical narrative. Uh, and I would also say, just as a practical thing, if you do view marriage in that way, and if you are not married, then most likely when you do get married, you're going to have these really high expectations that's going to put a lot of strain on uh, your spouse and on your marriage that I think won't be healthy. So uh, last week we said marriage is good, but it's not everything. Today, I want to look at marriage and why it's good. And I think if you've attended any Christian weddings, uh, I'm going to guess that you've probably heard this passage before because this is like one of those go-to passages that you hear when you hear a wedding sermon. Because this is a, this is a passage about the first wedding that takes place uh, in, in the beginning, in creation. But in order to really appreciate uh, what's going on in the passage that we see today, uh, I think the one thing we have to understand is that it's taking place within a wider literary context. Uh, in other words, what we read today, it's kind of uh, the, the final chorus. And in order to understand the power of this final chorus, you kind of have to listen to the entire song. And the song begins in Genesis 1 and uh, with the account of creation. And you kind of hear this very common refrain, this common chorus after God creates something. And God just says, you know, he creates something and he says, and God saw that it was good. God would create something and God saw that it was good. But here in this passage, for the first time, what we see is that something was not good in creation. And we see that very clearly in verse 18. And it says, and it is not good that man should be alone, and I will make a helper fit for him. And so if you've been listening to the entire song, you realize that what it says here is somewhat of a departure in terms of what has been going on up until this point. God saw that it wasn't good for man to be alone, and so what does God do? He creates a woman. He creates a woman for man, and they would be bound together in marriage, in this first marriage. And I think uh, the man is pretty happy here because uh, if you look at verse 23, uh, he breaks out in poetry. Right, romantic poetry. He says, "Flesh of my flesh, bone to my bones," and uh, I think you lose some of the uh, the poetry and the translation from the Hebrew to the English. But uh, if you see the indentation, I think it's trying to maintain that. And there's this response, ecstatic response from man, and he is so excited and so happy because God gave him a woman. And so this is the first marriage. This is the story of marriage, and this is what we see in the beginning of creation. Uh, but here's what I want to ask today. Uh, why, why is marriage good and what makes marriage good? Because I think depending on what you believe marriage to be, uh, you might actually come up with some very different answers. You know, a couple months ago, I think it was in February, David Brooks wrote this column in the New York Times um, where he talks about these three different perspectives of marriage that people often have. And he, he you know, analyzes a little bit these three different lenses. And he says the first lens in which people generally view marriage is through a psychological lens. And so through this lens, you basically, what you do is you analyze things like personality traits. You, you try to find somebody who is compatible for you. Uh, in this article or in, through this lens, you, you want to find somebody who is seeking the same things that you are, who is seeking social harmony, who's generally a good person, who's somebody who is nice. And basically what you want to do is you want to stay away from 
neurotic people and people who are emotionally unstable. And this is uh, what David Brooks calls the psychological lens. And therefore, I think through this lens, if you were to ask somebody who saw marriage through this lens, what makes for a good marriage, they might say this, uh, what makes for a good marriage is ultimately compatibility. It's ultimately two personalities that fit together. It's ultimately two people that just go together really well. The second lens in which he analyzes is the romantic lens. And through this lens, a good marriage is one that is filled with great passion. It's filled with passionate love. And he says that people who view marriage through this lens tend to think this way, that the dating phase is basically uh, to do this. Uh, you exercise passionate love to one another and you try to cultivate this passionate love for one another so much so that it would fuse you together so that you will stay together in difficult moments when you end up getting married. And I think through this lens, a good marriage is going to be one that is filled with great passion and passionate experiences. Uh, it's one in which there is always romance and there is a strong romantic desire for one another. The third lens in which he looks at marriage is what he calls the moral or spiritual lens. And I think he would probably categorize this lens as being the Christian understanding of marriage because uh, he, you know, he actually quotes Tim Keller's book on marriage when he tries to describe this view of marriage. And in this view of marriage, marriage actually serves a higher purpose. Uh, it's not meant for ultimate fulfillment. It's not meant for ultimate pleasure. It's not even ult ultimately meant for romance, but there's a higher purpose, and that higher purpose could be something like this. It is to cultivate a more selfless love within you in which you can continually practice mutual self-giving. And through this marriage, or through this lens, a good marriage is one in which there is moral growth or in which there is spiritual growth. And when David Brooks looks at these three different lenses of marriage, he says, basically, the best thing is probably to employ all three, right? Uh, it's probably good to look at things like compatibility. It's probably good to look at things like uh, romance and passion and things like that. But he also says this, that the first two lenses are already very common in our culture, but the third lens in which people view marriage is much less common. And the way he ends this article is this. He suggests that maybe one of the reasons why the quality of good marriages is in decline is because this third lens in which to view marriage is also in decline. Now, I think he is, uh, I think he's right when he says that we probably do employ all these different perspectives, all these different lenses. And depending on which lens is dominant and depending on which how you ultimately understand and view marriage, I think, is going to be ultimately how you understand and define what a good marriage is and what it's supposed to be. And that is inevitably going to have an impact in terms of how one approaches marriage. And what I'd like to do, I think, for the rest of this time is basically expand upon this third lens that David Brooks uh, calls the moral spiritual lens and really look at the design and purpose of marriage uh, according to the Bible, according to how God understands it and how God sees it, as we take a look at the first wedding that takes place here. Now, if you look at verse 24, it says this, uh, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
Now, in the Hebrew, those, the words translated as leave and as hold fast are actually very particular words which oftentimes describe a very particular relationship. Uh, these Hebrew words often describe what is called a covenant relationship. And I know that the word covenant is not the most widely used word, and it is not often the easiest concept to communicate because there are no perfect analogies for what exactly a covenant relationship is and what it entails. But you see, marriage is supposed to be one of those relationships that is supposed to be in covenant. It is a covenantal relationship. And I think if we're going to understand what marriage is, we have to understand what this concept of covenant is. And so I think the first thing that we can say about this word covenant or this concept of covenant is this. A covenant is a legally binding agreement between two parties. Okay, A covenant is a legally binding agreement between two parties. Now, the reason it's important to understand that is because I do often hear people say or, th or think, and this is not just exclusive to people outside the church, but I hear this a lot amongst Christians as well, that marriage, the marriage certificate is basically just a piece of paper, and it doesn't have any real meaning and real power in defining what makes marriage a marriage. And I think the reason that that kind of mentality is so prevalent is because, you know, in the modern story that we live in, authority resides within, ultimately, I think, the individual. And the way commitment is ultimately expressed is not through some external authority saying, okay, you two are committed to one another. But the way commitment is expressed in the modern story is by the individual. And the individual says, you know, I am committed to you, I declare my love to you, and therefore, because I declare it to you, that's what makes our relationship a committed relationship. And therefore, this piece of paper, this marriage certificate, kind of gets uh, devalued as something that is not super important, and we go on kind of believing that there is uh, a deep level of commitment, even without this piece of paper. But... I actually think that piece of paper is really important and it makes all the difference in terms of how bound two people are to one another. And uh, let, me, let me just kind of give you a simple, uh, simple case. Uh, if you ever talk to somebody who's gone through a divorce, uh, it's, it's incredibly traumatic and an incredibly painful and an incredibly frustrating experience. And if you ask them, does this paper mean anything? They're going to say, of course it does, right? This paper meant everything when it came to dissolving that marriage. This paper is the reason why it was so hard to dissolve the marriage. And I think that tells us something about the power of that piece of paper in terms of the power that it has to bind two people together. Because it means this, when you are legally bound together in covenant, you are, you are really bound together, beyond just your feeling, beyond just your desire, beyond just your individual expression, but you're bound together legally. And to break up and to break that relationship is not a mere formality, but it makes it a lot more traumatic and a lot more difficult, even beyond the emotional pain that it causes. See, sometimes I think Christians think that uh, it's the the ceremony that ultimately binds two people together in marriage. 
And of course, the ceremony is important because there you are declaring your vows. There you are making a commitment before God and before witnesses and before people. But if you've never been married, maybe you don't realize uh, what takes place after the ceremony. And usually after the ceremony, what happens is the couple will go into the room with a minister and some witnesses, and you go and you sign the marriage certificate. And you make it a, you make it a formal commitment after the marriage. And again, the reason for that is so that the vows that you have just made in public are not just mere words. It's not just mere sentiment. But it's so that there is weight behind what you are doing when you are choosing to marry somebody, when you are choosing to commit to somebody, when you are choosing to give yourself to someone in such a way that you're saying, I will be bound to you till death do us part. Marriage is a covenant. But a covenant is also more than that. It is more than just simply a legally binding agreement between two parties. And uh, if we think that marriage is only that, then it is very easy to think of marriage as simply a, a business relationship or a legal relationship. But in the concept of covenant, we're also supposed to see a sense of personal relationship, a sense of intimacy that takes place. And so that's why when people say a covenant is like a contract, uh, to me, that is not a uh, a great analogy because, again, uh, I think a covenant is more than that. There has to be intimacy there. Now, I think part of the, uh, the modern story of love and marriage might be a reaction to uh, how people experience marriage through their parents when they were growing up and they, when they were kids. And, uh, you know, oftentimes I think, I, I hear this a lot from people, but, uh, you know, we might grow up and our parents, they're together but they're not, they don't really have a relationship with one another. Maybe uh, they're miserable by being together, but they just stay together because they have to stay together. Maybe they stay together because of the kids. Maybe they end up uh, sleeping in separate rooms and they hardly speak to one another uh, unless they have to. And I imagine a lot of people who kind of grew up seeing marriage in this way saw something, right, I think rightly saw something faulty with that kind of picture of marriage. And to say, oh, they're, they're just staying together because they're legally bound together, but they have no relationship and they have no intimacy, I think also is not uh, what God intends when he talks about covenant here. And so when we're talking about, yes, marriage is a covenant, it's not less than a legally binding agreement, but it is also so much more. Because in that is also personal relationship. In that is also great intimacy. In that is also deep friendship. And so marriage is a covenant, and it reflects uh, the covenant that God has with his people. And if marriage is a covenant, then let's return to this question and ask, what is it that makes marriage good? And I think we can say a lot here, but let me just mention a few things. I think the first thing we can say is if marriage is a covenant, that means it gives you great freedom. It gives you great freedom. Now, some people make this joke that the wedding ring is the world's tiniest handcuffs. And so it might not be completely obvious how binding yourself to another person by way of covenant gives you freedom, but I think it does. 
You know, if you think about the dynamics of most relationships outside of the parent-child relationship, uh, a lot of a lot of our relationships operate on consumer values. Uh, in other words, most people say this: you know, I will be in a relationship with you as long as I get what I want out of it, and as long as it doesn't cost me too much. And so, uh, in that kind of relationship, I think there is a greater tendency to、uh, to perform. To please the other person,、uh, so that we don't end up getting rejected. You know, you're always trying to meet the expectations of the other person because there is always a danger that they, that other person will leave the relationship, and so you're not free. And maybe some of us have had friends where we've seen them in these really unhealthy relationships. And、uh, they never feel secure because there is no real commitment, and they're never sure whether they're matching up. They're never sure whether they're good enough. And in that kind of dynamic, I think you see that this person is enslaved, and they don't have the freedom to be themselves because there is always that danger of being rejected. You know, sometimes I think、uh, a woman might think that a man is romantic because a man. Might do romantic things、uh, during the dating stage, but then sometimes those romantic gestures end after the dating stage. Once you get married, and maybe the woman goes, "Hey, you know, you used to buy me flowers all the time. What happened? Right? You used to be more romantic. What happened? You change. You change." And、uh, here's what I would argue: I would say, you know. You've been duped. <laughs>、uh, maybe this person hasn't changed at all, but they were trying to impress you.、Uh, they were trying to get you. They were trying to win you. But you see, it's in the context of this committed relationship where now you get to see the person for who they really are. And the way, the reason you can see the person for who they are is because they are free to be who they are. They have that commitment bound by way of covenant. And then you begin to see the person, and then you begin to really learn what it means to love. Because you see, having the freedom to be yourself also means that you are revealing parts of yourself that you probably try to hide for most people. And that leads to the second thing that covenant relationship does: is it teaches you what it is to love selflessly. A couple weeks ago, there was this、uh, other piece in the New York Times.、Uh, I think it was last month. It was a Sunday、uh, review, and、uh, it was by this philosopher named、uh, Alan de Botton, and、uh, it was called "Why You Will Always Marry the Wrong Person." Now, this guy, this philosopher, he's he's pretty interesting, and you can look up a TED talk that he has online, and he has this TED talk called "Atheism 2.0." So he's He is an atheist. He doesn't believe in God, but he has a actually very interesting view of atheism in the sense that he thinks atheists should actually try to learn more from religious people. So he calls it atheism 2.0, and he says, you know, we should try to borrow some things in the religious tradition. And so I think in that vein, in that light, he writes this article, and I and I do see that he borrows a lot from、uh, Christianity and certain doctrines of Christianity when he writes this. And his basic argument and his basic point is this. Uh, if you think that you are going to meet that perfect being, who is going to fulfill all of your needs and satisfy every yearning, you, be, you have to get real. 
Right? That being does not exist. That person does not exist. And he says this, We need to swap the romantic view for a tragic awareness that every human will frustrate, anger, annoy, madden, and disappoint us. And we will, without any malice, do the same to them. And then he has this great line where he says, Compatibility is an achievement of love. It must not be its precondition. You ever think about that before? Uh, we think we have to be compatible in order to love. He says the opposite. And he says compatibility is actually an achievement of love, and we must not make it a precondition to it. And what he's doing here, obviously, I think he's, he's trying to challenge Western romantic conceptions of marriage. He's also challenging what David Brooks would call the psychological lens. And he says, you know, the way that we've gone about relationships is not healthy and it's not great because we're uh, looking for things that ultimately will not work. We've set our expectations too high. We're trying to determine if there's compatibility. We're trying to determine if there's chemistry, whether it's social, whether it's emotional, whether it's sexual. And we're trying to see if there's enough there that can make it work. But Botten says that no matter who you marry, at some point you're going to feel like that you've married the wrong person. Why? Because the person that you've married, after you've married them, you're going to see them for who they are, warts and all. You're going to see the things that frustrate you. You're going to see the things that offend you. You're going to see the things that make you upset and angry. And they're going to see the same thing about you. But when you're bound to another person and these things happen, you're forced to learn to do things that maybe you were never forced to do. You're forced to learn uh, deep forgiveness. You're forced to let go and to give up of desires that are so strong within your hearts you're forced to learn what it means to die to yourself. You're forced to really learn what selfless love means. And when you're in that committed and legally binding relationship, then you are in a position where your marriage, uh, where you'll learn how to flourish in your marriage. And some of you know, maybe either through personal experience or by seeing the difficulties of marriage in friends or family, but there are sometimes going to be moments, and not for everybody, but for some people at least, where you may feel like you really hate the other person. There's going to be moments where you just wish you could go back and you could reverse the, the decision that you made and say, I wish I never married this person. There's going to be those moments where you're going to say, you know, if I wasn't legally bound or if I didn't have kids, I would be out of here. But that is the advantage of marriage, is that it doesn't leave the decision simply up to you. It doesn't leave the decision simply up to your desires and what you are feeling at that moment, no matter how intense they are. And friends, it can get very intense but it forces you to do something that maybe you've never had to do before. It forces you to say, all right, I have to love this person, even though at this moment I really don't like them. That I have to learn what it means to forgive this person, even though I've been hurt so deeply. That I have to let go of the things that I really desire in my heart, even though I really, really don't want to. And by the way, those are the moments, actually, 
where you get closer to experience the kind of love that Jesus Christ has shown us. It's in those moments, friends. And you see, that only happens with the benefit of covenant. That only happens with the benefit of being bound together in such a way where you've given your entire self and you're bound together in such a way where it's not up to you to end it, but it's up to some external authority. Finally, a covenant relationship, I think, it creates security and it creates safety. And uh, the reason I say that is this. You know, if you look at the, the two things that follow marriage here in this passage, I think they can only be done in a context of safety and security. The first thing you see in verse 24 is this. Uh, you're supposed to leave your parents uh, when you get married. You know, when you're a child, you find your safety and security in your parents in an ideal situation. And I know not everybody uh, grew up with uh, great parents, but in an ideal situation, you trust your parents to love you. You trust your parents to protect you and to guide you as you grow into adulthood. And marriage calls you to leave that, the safety of that relationship and to enter into another relationship but to enter into another relationship that is also supposed to be one of safety and security. And that, again, only happens by way of covenant. And I think this is also just a very important practical point because so many marriages get strained when uh, one spouse is not willing to do that, to, to leave their parents. When uh, one person is continually valuing the opinion and desires of their parents over their own spouse. And if you have that, then you haven't left them. And if you have that, then your spouse is not going to feel safe and secure in that marriage. Second, a covenant relationship makes it safe to be naked and vulnerable before one another. Now think about that for a minute. Uh, to be naked and vulnerable before one another actually means this, that you are giving a lot of power to this other person. Uh, they are seeing you for who you are at your core in the most, most intimate way, and you're showing it to them, and you're revealing it to them. And that's a lot, that's a lot of power to give to a person. You see, with that power, you know, there is the power to, of course, build you up like nobody else can, but there is also the power to crush you in a way that nobody else can. And that can either be a very precious gift or that can be a very deadly curse. And that is a power that you shouldn't just give anybody outside of a committed covenant relationship because it's just not safe to do that. Now, I know in our culture, the, uh, the traditional understanding of sex within the context of marriage can be seen as something that's, you know, oh, too traditional or too prudish or so outdated. And it seems like everybody is having sex outside of marriage these days. But you have to realize this, that the reason why it seems so normal is because, again, the story that we've constantly heard about sex in our culture. Sex is an appetite to be fulfilled, and therefore we need to fill it. Sex is a means of self-expression, and we need to express ourselves. But in the Bible, sex is ultimately an expression of 
deep vulnerability, and self-giving, the self-giving to another person. And that means this, that sex is not something that is dirty or wrong as long as it's in the, con in a, in the right context. But it also means this, sex is a powerful thing and we should not take its use lightly. You're making yourself physically vulnerable and that is meant to reflect the fact that you have made yourself completely vulnerable to another person. It's meant to reflect the fact that you have completely offered yourself to another person. See, sex in our culture tends to be self-centered and selfish, and you have things like the rise of a hookup culture and things like pornography, and that's not helping to change the narrative. You see, sex in the Bible is this ultimate act of self-giving, of giving yourself to somebody. And to do that outside of marriage, to do that outside of a covenant, is just not a safe thing to do. And I think a lot of people know this based on experience. Uh, if you have been rejected before making yourself that vulnerable, then yeah, it's going to be painful, but it's not going to be as painful as getting rejected by somebody after you have made yourself so, so vulnerable in that way. And I think that's what really messes people up. I think that's why people start to have issues with trust and jealousy in relationships. I think that's why people start to get jaded and closed and perhaps guarded uh, in their relationships. And I think that's why people can oftentimes feel used and discarded in relationships. And I think the way our culture has tried to deal with this is by disconnecting sex from relationship, but I don't think that's going to make things work better. You see, God has a design that this kind of thing, this kind of vulnerability should only take place within the context of a covenant because it's only safe within that context. It's only safe to make yourself that vulnerable to another person when you have that kind of commitment. Now, I think as we conclude, uh, I want to return to a point that I made in the beginning. Marriage, and by that I don't mean our personal experience of marriage, but I mean God's vision for marriage. Marriage helps us understand more about our relationship with God. How so? You know, one of the central organizing categories that the Bible describes our relationship with God is that of covenant. God enters into a covenant with people, and that is how we, uh, that is one way maybe the central way in which we understand what it means to actually be in a relationship with God. And let me give you an example of this. You know, in Genesis chapter 15, God, he enters into a covenant with Abraham, uh, who at the time is called Abram. And God makes this promise, and he says to Abram, I promise uh, to bless you. I will make your offspring number that of the stars. And Abraham responds by saying, uh, you know, how do I know? Right? How do I know that you're going to keep this promise, God? And God responds by telling Abraham to get these animals, to cut them in half. And uh, you know, I know that sounds a little bit weird to us, but uh, in the ancient culture, that is uh, a covenant-making ceremony. And they would cut these animals in half, and they would walk through it in order to ratify the covenant. And so God tells Abraham to cut these animals in half, and uh, when darkness comes, uh, there is a little twist in the story because you would expect that Abraham would be the one to walk through the carcasses. But what it says in that passage is this, that a, a torch, right, a flaming torch, walks through the carcasses. 
And basically what that's meant to communicate is that God is the one who would walk through these carcasses. And that's how God makes a covenant with Abraham. Now, what that means is this. You know, in a covenant-making ceremony, the reason that they would do that and the way it would be ratified by blood is because they're saying this. You know, if I fail to meet uh, this covenant, if I fail to meet the demands of this covenant, may this happen to me. May I be cut off. May I be destroyed. May I be torn apart, just like these animal carcasses. And you think about the fact that it was God himself who made this promise, who also walked through these carcasses, And what is he saying? He's saying, may I be destroyed and may I be cursed if I don't keep this covenant. And God, in that act, is making himself deeply vulnerable. You see, it's an act of condescension for him to even enter into a covenant with man. Now, Abraham has no idea where this story would lead but we know because we have the whole story. See, covenant is also how we come to understand what happened when Jesus died upon the cross. You see, we were in covenant with God, and actually God fulfilled the demands of the covenant, but we were the ones who fell short. We were the ones who were unfaithful, and that's why the Bible likens us to that of a harlot or an adulterous woman, because we were the unfaithful ones when it came to this covenant. But what's amazing there is this, that we were the ones who were supposed to be cut off. We were the ones who were supposed to be destroyed and torn apart. But that doesn't happen. But God, in the person of Jesus Christ, makes himself vulnerable to the point of becoming human, to the point of subjecting himself to death upon a cross, and he himself takes upon these curses of the covenant. He himself gets torn apart. He himself reaps the curse and the judgment for us breaking this covenant. And that all happened because God himself made himself deeply vulnerable when he entered into a covenant with us. You see, that is what we're supposed to get when we see God's vision for marriage. This idea of covenant. Covenant. The marriage covenant is ultimately an illustration of how God relates to us. How God would go so far as to preserve this relationship that it wasn't about compatibility because there is no compatibility between God and man, between a holy God and sinful man. That God himself doesn't divorce himself from us even though he has every right to but that God out of his love does everything he possibly can even to the point of making himself deeply vulnerable to the point of being utterly rejected as he would die on a cross so that we can be with him. Simple as that. So we can call him our husband. So we can claim that we have relationship with him and intimacy with him and security in him and safety in him. And that is a vision of marriage that we ought to have. And when we tell the story of marriage through our own marriages, and we do it in such a way, then we bear witness. But when we distort what marriage is supposed to be and we make it all about us, we misunderstand what marriage is ultimately about and why marriage is good. Marriage is good because it appoints us to the future marriage, the marriage that we have with our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads 
in prayer as the worship team comes and leads us in response.